difficulty of having a life situation. And we imagine, I'm sure this is all familiar to us, they were really good at imagining a better place. You know, our version of heaven, whatever it might be, winning the lottery, finding love, um, having a nice set where the mind quiets down, a body that feels good, that has energy. We fantasize about some utopia, some nice situation for ourselves. And that's our basic approach, or often how we approach dukkha, or the yuckiness of our situation of the body and mind. So this other way that I thought we could talk about tonight is uh, a more active and confident movement of the heart coming out of life experience that understands that dukkha isn't a problem, dukkha is a teacher. And, you know, this, we have to be careful talking this way because, you know, we say that to somebody who's in a lot of suffering and they can feel quite insulted by that. Oh, you're telling me this is a teacher. You know, like living in poverty is a teacher or being oppressed is a teacher or having cancer is a teacher. Um, So we want to be a little bit careful about spouting this as some truth. And instead, we want to just begin a very basic, direct investigation. And generally in places in our life that aren't completely overwhelming. Like one of the great teachers for many of us is sitting with physical discomfort. Because it's here and now, And we have deep instincts that pervade our mind that somehow it makes sense to distract yourself from the pain or, you know, want to beat it up, want to get rid of it or tighten around it. You know, we have so many primal reactions to just ordinary discomfort. I'm not talking about extreme discomfort, but just feeling an ache or pain or restlessness in the body. But even something so simple as that, just understanding the alchemy, like how there is a way for the mind to flip from being the one who suffers, you know, to the one that's free. The mind as freedom versus the mind as the one who's suffering, who doesn't like, who wants things to be different, who wishes it weren't this way. So those are spaces we're probably very familiar with inhabiting, as opposed to the heart that's free, the mind that's free, unbounded, not not in this moment limited by what's happening. And this freedom isn't some um, strategy that comes at a cost. Like, you know, sometimes we can direct the mind in particular ways, like with exuberance or joy. We can sort of whip it up and then really attend to the froth of that joy. And it gives us a sense of escape. Except we start to notice how much work it is to keep the mind on that joy 
and to keep it whipped up, you know, to stay excited about it. Because it has to be engaging, and if it stops being engaging, the mind, in a sense, loses its grip, and it falls back into its ordinary state. It's right there with everything that's there in the ordinary state. not just in Buddhism, but in a lot of spiritual traditions, <clears throat> you know, they talk about this alchemy. <coughs> you know, we've been talking about it for weeks, but some sense of uh, like a nimbleness in the mind that's willing to shift its perspective. And it's really the interesting thing about this alchemy it's like there, it has a magic, a magic to it. It's not real magic in the sense that it, it's not lawful. It's very lawful. But it's magic because something that is true hasn't been apparent. Like our one thing, you know, it's like there's something that needs to be unlocked about the experience of dukkha to turn it into, to change it from being a problem. This is a personal problem. The pain, like I've had a lot of physical pain the last almost year now in my sitting. And, uh, you know, it's just so, I worked with that, like when we did, when I offered those questions, I was just working with the physical pain in my body. And to uh, sort of see that the, the real trick is uh, the initial the, the initial movement of the mind is this decision or this definition that this is a problem as opposed to well this is interesting you know or even better you know oh my teachers come to visit <laughs> I'm so happy thank you <laughs> but we don't have that attitude I mean we laugh because it's so absurd but that's actually what we need to do it's not a joke um, and the thing is that if we see the attitude that is present, it becomes very clear that that attitude is the joke because it's so counterproductive. You know, the not liking of the physical pain or the arrogant, unquestioned notion that I'm going to fix this, I'm going to make this go away, I'm going to make this better that the hardness of that and the, uh, you know, how it is when you run into somebody who has really strong fundamental views about anything, you know, they could be a fundamentalist liberal or whatever it might be about, you know, think Android phones are better than iPhones or something like, something ridiculous like that. (laughs) And, you know, just sometimes when we're sensitive, it really, it's intense to be around somebody whose mind is, locked in in a particular way, like just really sure of their view. And it this is hard to bear even if you completely agree with the person's view. But it's the hardness or the fixedness of their view that's really hard to be around if we're in a sensitive place. And this is what we can discover. And it's not, it's the the real trick that sort of lines things up and allows for this alchemy 
is really uh, seeing that view in the mind around pain, around what's difficult, and not being afraid of it, sort of intimidated by the confidence of that strong view, you know, that this is bad, this shouldn't be happening, I give up. You know, there's many ways that we, you know, that strong fundamentalist, but probably more than any other place in life, more than in politics or religion, human minds have fundamentalist views around pain, mental and physical pain. Unquestioned fundamentalist views in the sense of not really being based on a careful investigation, examination of one's experience, but being based on a superficial, handed-down view. And that fundamentalist, in, you know, in my opinion, in a way that just creates more problems because we tend to, you know, tightness tends to evoke more tightness in the same way that fear tends to create fear and anger tends to perpetuate anger. We've come across, and I've always been really moved when I come across this in different places. I remember long ago when Bill Moyers interviewed Joseph Campbell, which, you know, in my mind, for whatever reason, really worked for me, that that interview. And that was then later, it was printed up in a book and also uh, on TV and on public television. And uh, it just seemed to be a real amazing blossoming of some current of understanding our mind. You know, Joseph Campbell wasn't necessarily a Buddhist or somebody who maybe, I don't know, maybe he didn't even meditate, I'm not sure. But he clearly understood some things about the mind. And I remember somewhere in that, in those interviews, um, they were talking about this alchemy and and uh, Joseph Campbell talked about, you know, how important it is to relate to these difficult experiences in our life as if we've chosen them. Because, and this is a very Buddhist way of thinking about it, because it's skillful, not because it's true, like that we actually did choose in some sense. And clearly in a Buddhist sense, it wouldn't make sense to say that, you know, I, as an individual apart from everything else, you know, at the great cafeteria in the sky, I chose these particular experiences to have in this lifetime. And that's, you know, that's why they're happening. And that's why they're just right. Because we can personalize it. But but to find some way to change that perspective, that reflexive, fundamentalist view we have about what's difficult. And, And part of that is really being able to name what's difficult. Because some difficulties, some oppressive patterns that keep visiting us are so regular that we forget that they're oppressive. Like a pervasive sense of helplessness, a pervasive sense of not having enough energy, a pervasive sense that we're better than other people. The world's stupid. I mean, there are so many of these patterns 
But if we can see them, and then, then, the, then the beginning of the alchemy is like seeing it as a teacher. Like there is freedom here. One of the things about dukkha, just energetically, when life is difficult, the experience, the moment is difficult, the energy of the body and the mind, heart, it's tight, it's held. And so one of the ways to help the mind with this alchemy, like changing the uh, perspective or the view we have about this difficulty, is to, because we have to stay close, so we can't just fantasize like it's this elegant, wise teacher here, because that's not how it appears. You know, it's heavy or hard or tight, hot or difficult. But to, so in that actual experience of the dukkha, the energetic sort of expression of the dukkha, we can imagine, you know, again, because it's skillful to, we can imagine that that energy just wants to move. There's a lot of energy there, and it just wants to move. And by the way, what is energy when it moves without resistance? Well, we call that joy. That's what joy is. Joy is the natural movement of things when the mind or heart isn't resisting it in any way. When you're, you know, for some of you, or some of us, when we're going down the roller coaster, you know, and we like it, you know, whatever that, whatever emotions and feelings, we're not resisting. They're just moving. And there's a real joy because there's so much energy, emotions, feeling, moving. So we call it like a rush. And then if you're a different kind of person, you know, that's resisting the movement, then it's not joy. Because what's standing out in the mind is the friction the mind is creating through fear. So what I found, like when I notice how my heart is bound up in any way, little or big, is to, to get a sense of, of, like, this is life energy. And this life energy, through mistaken understanding, is being suppressed, repressed, held, entrapped by, you know, the dynamic of fear or greed or aversion, that mental activity creates this experience of being bound up. Ajahn Tanisaro has a, several different places, has a great way of talking about how the best translation of Nibbana is to be unbound. So that means dukkha is to be bound up, to be the mind or heart to be entrapped in some way. And you see, this is a nice way. And, and the thing is, this uh, way that I'm talking about it, of, of dukkha as life energy, not a problem, but actually life energy being held then it gets interesting, right? Then, then it's like you can really imagine it as a teacher, as a jewel, as something that is just waiting for an opportunity to express itself in a beautiful way. Like from the beautiful way is going from being bound to unbound. You know, I'm sure, you've, or many of you at least have heard that in, you know, in the traditional yogic teachings, Sometimes people refer to it as Hinduism. 
that's not the term they use. But uh, there's this idea of maya, the, that this world is kind of the play. You know, it's the, because the greatest rush of all is to create the conditions for dukkha, for there to be what appears to be a living being who is suffering only in order to experience that suffering being seen through. Like, oh, it never was suffering. That's a real rush. And some of you probably have had the experience where uh, something felt like a real problem and then you realize it wasn't a problem. It isn't a problem. It couldn't have been a problem. And there's so much lightness. And so this, you know... (laughs) I mean, again, it's just a story, but it might be a useful story to begin to change our relationship to what we, in a fundamentalist way, take very seriously. And it's even politically incorrect, spiritually incorrect, to say things like this about dukkha. Because people who are in the middle of it and lost in it, it's as real as anything is real. And they with every fiber of their mind and body, they don't want to be in that experience. They want to be out of it. And their way of out of it, they don't mean like uh, being okay with it. They want it gone. That's why, you know, that was such a provocative image last week when I mentioned... uh, climate scientists talking about imagining that we're this earth, you know, or at least the ecosystem in this fragile little window that allows for most of the life we know, that that's in hospice, that it's just a matter of time before that little band of temperature and air and other sort of essential factors that allows for this diversity of life to be safe that just shifts a little bit. You know, that spectrum is huge. And the band that allows this particular kind of life to exist is very thin, given all the the great spectrum of how things might be on this planet. And so many forces are at play that, you know, cause movement and this band of temperature and air and water and the other elements that allow for life. And just to see the inevitability, you know, whether it's in 40 years or 40 billion years or whatever, but it's just a matter of time before that band shifts and whatever we call this, you know, planet of life just won't be able to be here. To take out the seriousness, you know, like uh, I remember some of you might have heard of Swami Satchidananda. He was a pretty well-known spiritual teacher in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And uh, somebody once asked him about, this is back in the 80s, and there's still a lot of energy around uh, nuclear holocaust. And... uh, So somebody asked him about that, (coughs) you know, about the world being destroyed because of nuclear 
accident or nuclear war. And he gave this answer, which again, isn't necessarily the truth, but it may be a really skillful story or skillful way to think about it. And he said something like, well, don't worry, there are lots of worlds, you know, to be reborn in. So if it isn't one world, it will be another world. We don't have to get tight about birth and death. Another retreat I was on with Shokni Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, somebody was asking the question about impermanence and in the question was implying like in a serious way that impermanence is a problem. And his response was very simple. He says, I don't have a problem with impermanence. So this is also just pointing to the shift of perspective that in a way it ignites this transmutation from something being a problem to not a problem. Because I've off and on over the years worked a lot with physical pain um, in my sitting, I, uh, I've noticed this experience and you know, just trying to understand where the mind gets steady with the way things are, which includes the physical pain in the body, the unpleasant sensations of the body, and the way the mind is, and everything as it is, and comes into that refined balance where it's not pushing or pulling, it's not distracted, but it's not like leaning in, trying to make something happen either. And it's as if the ground disappears. So the ground, in this case, you know, in this use of the term, means like the mind ceases having opinions plus or minus. And when the mind doesn't have any, isn't actively defining the experience in any way, there's literally no ground. Because the shape or ground or weight of our existence comes from the meaning the mind projects. When the mind ceases that activity, there's no ground, there's no problem, there's what we call the heart's release. And this is the experience we can, this is the alchemy I'm talking about with dukkha. But we have to, like we did at the beginning of the sit tonight, we have to realize that the primary ingredient for this kind of work is not to be desperate. And we're mostly desperate. Even when we don't think we are, we're mostly desperate for a little comfort. I remember, I forget where I came across it, but some teacher said, um, never underestimate what we'll do for a little bliss, you know, a little relief, a little nice experience. We're, it's really our biggest addiction is just give me a little nice feeling. Whether it's a cup of hot chocolate or lying down after kind of being busy or getting a good hug when we've been feeling lonely or whatever it might be feeling praised when we've been feeling stupid. These things like, oh, it's like, ah. Oh. But the thing is, it's a deal with the devil when we uh, are um, addressing our dukkha with a splash of pleasantness. You see, it ties us in because even before we completely get the pleasantness, it's already 
slipping through our fingers. We're already feeling it's not enough. We already feel threatened by being left alone again without it. And it makes us even, the, the pleasantness makes us even more afraid of the unpleasantness that comes and goes in our lives. If you want to learn more about this, uh, you know, I was talking about this feeling of being bound up. Eckhart Tolle and Jack Kornfield do a good job. They talk about it in different ways. I think Jack Kornfield calls it, what is he, uh, body, uh, body of fear, maybe? And uh, Eckhart Tolle, who's not <clears throat> really a Buddhist, um, here's its own title for it. Let's see. Here's Pain Body. Yeah. And that the way Eckhart Tolle talks about it, it's that uh, this experience of being bound up, resisting life in different ways, subtle and not so subtle ways, we're resisting the mind through its projections creates the experience of friction. It's important to understand that it's an experience of friction, or you could even say an appearance of friction or stress, because otherwise it feeds into the idea that there is a suffering human being, there is a heart that's bound up, and it's that thought, that projection, that prevents the alchemy. So we have to, we have to begin, like when we experience dukkha, this is why we need to feel safe enough. We have to begin to play with the idea that this is just an appearance of being tight, being bound up, an appearance of unpleasantness. Because that's, that's actually the technical truth. There is this appearance. This pain is something being known. We don't actually know what it is. It, we just know there is this thing being known. The experience of being bound up is being known. It had. There is this appearance. And, uh, and he talks about this tendency to be bound up. You know, it, it sort of comes onto the surface of our experience for a while, and then it can go retreat into the background a little bit. And he talks about how every sense experience we have, we see somebody, we taste something, we think something. And he talks about it like it jiggles that tendency to be bound up. It triggers it in different ways, provokes it, evokes it. It's like waiting to be fed. And it's because of how we see. We don't realize this, but everything we experience through seeing and hearing and touching and thinking, smelling and tasting, it's being seen in part, through the eyes of this, and he talks about it almost as if it, it's a living thing. Because that's what nature is. Like a wild animal or the woods, it is a living thing, but there's no center. So we could say it's a demon, you know, that is inhabiting my life, but it's really just nature. 
It's just the natural, lawful residual of whatever's come before. And it exists as this pain body or this contracted energy that gives the appearance of somebody suffering. That's what it does. And the glue to that pattern is thinking this is somebody who's suffering. And by the way, it's me. I'm the one who's suffering here. I'm the one who's afraid. I'm the one who needs. And then through that sort of inhabiting, in a sense, that space, then everything that we sense, every sense experience, is in terms of that feeling of being bound, the suffering. It jiggles it a little bit. And each jiggle, each effect, each uh, provocation sort of reminds us that it's me that's tight, me that's feeling bound, me that wants to be free. So partly I wanted to go into this just to um, maybe bring up some respect for how subtle this process is, how important it is to feel safe in doing this work. You know, and the ways that we feel safe is being in community, for some people at least, really strengthens the sense of safety. Uh, Systematically uh, cultivating beautiful states of mind through the development of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. Finding those qualities in the mind, looking at them, naming them, keep bringing the attention back to them is what makes those qualities stronger, more present, more often in the mind, in the heart. Understanding the teachings, like the rational basis of these teachings, they make sense, they align with our experience, I can trust them. Women and men and beings of all kinds have done this practice and have gotten the results from this practice just as we're doing. So that sort of confidence in the teachings, confidence that people have done this before me, is uh, creates a sense of safety. Like, well, why can't I do it? I can do it. The Buddha did it. I can do it. And in a way, then we only need, if we feel safe, if we're able to find enough safety in our life, enough balance and evenness and contentedness in our life, then we just need a little push to do this practice. Because it's interesting. But the thing is, once we go down that road, you know, it's hard to turn back. There's a famous line, uh, Jack Cornfield quotes it in, one of his books, uh, yeah, path, no, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, in chapter 2, he uh, tells the story of Trumpa Rinpoche, this controversial Tibetan teacher um, that was really instrumental in Dharma coming to the West. And uh, here's, I'll just read how Jack Kornfield describes this. He says, When the Tibetan teacher Chogram Trumpa arrived late, as usual, to a crowded San Francisco lecture hall, he offered a refund to anyone who did not want to stay. He warned those who were new 
that a true spiritual path is arduous and demanding, involving one insult after another. So he suggested that those with doubts, uh, that those with doubts not embark. Quote, if you haven't started, it's best not to begin. <laughs> then he looked steadily around the room and said, but if you have begun, it's best to finish. And this is the thing, and it's, it's sort of an interesting place when we do feel relatively stable, relatively peaceful and content in life. Could be because our sitting is stable, you know, our meditation practice and we're accessing states of tranquility. Or it could be that we have a really harmonious life, we have really good livelihood, that's not harming people, we feel good about it, we're in a healthy environment at our work, we have a, a good relationship with um, our family, you know, the body's healthy, and there's just a lot of harmony. And there's that sort of place like, uh, how deeply do I want to look? Or, you know, do I really want to stir the pot? And this is like, that's why I mentioned that, like just a little medicine there, which is appreciating that whatever, even the most sublime happinesses, like in Buddhism, we've got these really great stories about beings in other realms. Not even just angelic realms, you know, where beings have bodies of light, but realms where there aren't even bodies. They're so subtle, so refined, it's just love, but no, not even energy holding some body together. So, you know, they have these really expanded ideas, but even those uh, states of being, maybe you'd call it, are fragile. They last for a while, and then they cease. And then, depending on the seeds that are there in that mind stream or whatever, something else happens. And, uh, you know, may not be nice. <laughs> so, this is the... <coughs> excuse me. This is the place that we have to find some equanimity, some peace, some stability, and then appreciate just enough the fragility of our nice state to be interested in looking more deeply. Well, what's, what is going on here? So I'll leave it here. So we have 15 minutes. It'd be nice for people to share with the larger group tonight about your own experiences of this alchemy, what's gotten in the way, how maybe you've started down that road and then, ooh, maybe not. <laughs> maybe I don't want to look at this. Maybe this is really too much. Times when you really experience that transformation and uh, like, Partly, we don't like all that space and freedom sometimes, and then wanted to run back into a more contracted state, or whatever comes to mind, and of course, any questions that come to mind from the talk. So what seems relevant, and let's make sure to say our names if, if you decide to speak up. Yeah, Robert. Uh, what you remind me of this evening is uh, the first thing that I remember that um, our enemy is our creature. And um, I struggled with that a lot. 
understand the concept, understand where that's going, uh, except uh, I think the problem, where I, problem I have with it is, is that um, sometimes the dukkha is uh, so intense that I'm not able to open up to clarity about the lesson if that be it, that I'm learning. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, I try to bring that up tonight, and I think it can't be emphasized enough, because we, as spiritual seekers, we tend to be greedy. So as soon as there is in our minds this idea that we can transmute dukkha, we just want to transmute dukkha, because, like I said, we're desperate for a break. But we have to understand this is a lawful process and the primary, uh, the proximate ingredient to this transformation is feeling safe. So when we're, when we're overwhelmed by dukkha of any kind, the question is, what can I do to realize some safety first? Because there's no, it's really hard. I think it's impossible unless the mind can find some safety. So that's the relevant question. And I, I'm in a very practical way, if we can generate that, that's the first step when we're really overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with physical pain, overwhelmed by fear, is to ask the mind, the heart, the body, what can I do? What can I do? Because it's a movement towards compassion, right? And there's, that's already the beginnings of safety, to be able to relate from this place of caring about this overwhelm. What can I do to help? Who can help me? Who might be able to help me now? And maybe even before that, just the acknowledgement, you know, this heart hurts, or this body hurts, or this life hurts. What can I do to help? You even can get a sense energetically like how that feels good. Even if we don't have an answer to that question, how can I help? But the fact that we acknowledge that we're hurting, that life is difficult, and I want to help. And sometimes... uh, not that infrequent. There's nothing we can do. So that's why it's so important to realize that I do care. I want my heart, my body, my mind. It wants to respond. It wants to take care. But I don't know what to do. I don't see anything to do. So the one thing we do is we we bear with it. Because that's... We, just because there's nothing to do now or we don't know what to do now doesn't mean that there won't be something to do later. So we're, in a sense, at the ready. That also is a compassionate response. Because we want, it's compassionate to know that I want to help, but I don't know how to help, but I might be able to help in a moment and I want to be prepared for that moment, if it comes. 
Yeah, Robert. I tend to move to a place that's eating, sleeping, avoidance, TV, movie, or something. Uh, instead of sitting with it all the time, I sit with it all the time, and then try to understand it. Then I try to divert my attention from it. Mm-hmm. But that might be a wise and compassionate response. And the, the important thing would be to make it more conscious. So when you realize you're hurting and you in some way say to yourself, how can I help? And uh, the thought arises, well, maybe some entertainment, you know, maybe something to take my mind off of this. And then to ask yourself, well, what kind of <coughs> distraction would be useful that doesn't have side, uh, you know, really bad side effects? You know, and then that, and then we get more skillful at choosing the kind of entertainment or whatever that we're going to use, so that it really does provide a distraction or a diversion, so the mind isn't just looking at the pain and getting tight, but really gets a break, a vacation from that unwholesome sort of back and forth, where we look at the pain, we get tight. That's more pain. We look at the pain, we get tight. That's not useful. It is useful to break that cycle. And the, the only thing we can do is break it in a way uh, that has little, if any, side effects. You know, because some distractions, like drinking too much, can really cause problems. Others are relatively harmless, unless they're done obsessively forever. You know, like if all we do is watch TV when things are difficult... Obviously, that's not solving the problem. It may be effective to break a sort of a, a feeling of being overwhelmed. But then once we've broken that, then we have, that's when we, and we've got some space, that's when we check in with the pain again. Because now the mind isn't in this negative relationship to the pain. It can be more balanced. And there's a lot of this touch and go with difficulty in life where we really learn when the mind loses its balance and then we know it's better to redirect the attention somewhere else and not to keep turning. And I've seen it in my own practice and I've seen it in other people where the person or I have felt compelled to keep turning towards what's difficult even though my mind's not in balance. And the thing is, we think it's in balance. It's just like, you know, the joke is, you know, you seem angry and the person says, I'm not angry. <laughs> And that's how it seems to us. It's like it feels like we're looking at the pain in a balanced way, but that doesn't mean we are. I mean, really, the truth is, if we're really looking at pain in a balanced way, there's generally some release, because at least the second arrow goes away. The causes for the initial pain may not immediately go away or may even get worse, but the mind's resistance will go away if we're looking at it in a balanced way. And often that's more of it. Other thoughts? Yeah, Rebecca, and then... Um, well, I've been dealing with a lot of fear um, after my medical crisis, and um, what I've been noticing is when the fear starts getting to be at a really high anxiety level to the point where it can become panic, I just... Lately, I've been just... I I don't know, just intuitively telling myself, you know, I really don't know what's good and what's bad here. 
and I really don't have any answers and that's okay. And that just tends to really loosen things up when I just literally get honestly down to, you know, I just don't know. This, this doesn't have to be bad. Yeah. And that's it. It's just that simple. And, and to not try to find answers. Yeah. So that's a really good piece to bring into this discussion. Like in terms of the alchemy, and we need these different perspectives because it will illuminate specifically how our mind isn't, like what our mind isn't seeing. And so Rebecca's talking about this good-bad thing or this humility around the experience of dukkha. Because as long as we have the idea in the mind that I'm looking at what's painful, that idea itself is too much. So sometimes we have to go to the opposite. We have to tell ourselves the opposite to correct the imbalance. We have to say, oh, welcome, friend. You know, it's like silly to say that to pain. But it helps, or I don't know what this is. But one way or another, we have to, at least in a moment, uproot the tendency to see it a particular way, like you said, as bad. And that sense of not knowing is in that, for me at least, that really works. Like to know that I don't know. Or for me often it's like, I know it isn't what I think it is. That's helpful for me. Now that won't be helpful for everybody, but it just reminds me that whatever... Whatever, my, whatever card my mind wants to play, however subtle and clever it might be, that that's not it. That, that it requires uh, a, an opening that is undefended or you know, isn't a strategy there. Yeah, thanks. Did you have a thought? Well, I just find that so much of my that involves trying to find a balance between compassion for self and compassion for others. And, you know, I, I pile on by trying to do it right. Um, but I still haven't really found a good way to try and balance that. So I'm wondering if uh, uh, you, like, like that's a f- false question. Like, just hold it as a false question that it's one or the other. And don't impose, but get interested in like what's moving the heart, like what the heart is interested in, and how the heart is responding. Like what is the heart responding to? What does it want to respond to? What is it seeing and responding to? And not assume that it's a choice between self and other. It's just like, because actually it's just life being known. That's our actual experience. And some of, some of that life being known is what we conventionally call external reality. And some of the life being known is what we conventionally say is sort of an internal reality, like my lived experience here. But actually, it's just life being known, and we're giving permission to the heart to respond. And we're aware of how the heart's responding and, and how it responds some ways that we call compassion. It's like really good. And sometimes it responds in other ways that we'd call like being afraid, and that's tight. So when your mind has that, creates that, you know, dichotomy between self and other, just ask yourself something like, what do I, what does the heart care about? What is the heart seeing that is moving it, that it wants to respond to? What do you want to respond to? What do you care about? 
because why would it be bad to respond to our own suffering or to respond to somebody else's suffering? How would we, you know, how could you figure that out, actually, that question, like who, who deserves a response? Because it's not so much, it's not just a question of they have so much less than I do. It's like part of it is proximity, you know, this this heart and the problems, the heaviness, the suffering here is right here. And that other person, they're not there. They may be close, but they're not right there. So it's like we can't figure that out rationally. And that's a nice thing because that would be a real trap to, like in terms of generosity, in terms of sharing joy, in terms of gratitude, in terms of compassionate action, that we'd have to get it right, like who we should be grateful for, you know, and like that ranking it, and like it had to be right. Like we don't think about that in love as much as we might with compassionate action. Like, okay, who should I love the most or love now? You know, we just love what we love in that moment. And I think it can be the same with compassionate action. It doesn't mean that in this conventional external world we don't judge each other when we see somebody, you know, who just does a wonderful job caring for their garden and raising their child and <coughs> having a harmonious relationship with their neighbor. You know, it's easy for people to judge them and say, yeah, but, you know, there's global warming or there's this or there, there's that and you should be involved and if people don't do things, the world's going to go to hell and so who's to say, it's not really for us to say how people express their goodness and, yeah, just the arena of a person's life. It's like people think that about meditators generally, you know, that somehow it's an escape. And uh, I think it's, it's like an arrogant notion that we really understand how it all works that we think that only people who are activists in a more conventional sense are doing good in the world and people who are living lives of real balance and love and wisdom, that somehow their goodness isn't part of the soup, you know, that somehow it doesn't affect everybody else. Yeah, Alexis. My name is Alexis, and um, before sharing the... Um, my recent experience with Daphne, I just want to say that reminds me of the times when I have found it skillful to use Pema Children's um, Tomlin practice. It's uh, like if, if I'm fearful, you know, and I'm breathing in the fearfulness of all the other people in the world and giving out comfort or safety or whatever and um, so it includes everyone Yeah. and you don't have to spend your time kind of that way it, it's just starting here with the recognition that you're among many others who at this moment are feeling the same thing that you're feeling yeah that's a classic alchemy practice from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition Myoshin Kelly gave a talk here. Uh, if you want to find it, it was last December 
I think, on Tonglen practice. And uh, you can download that. Our um, Pema Children's book is wonderful. Does it start where you, you are? What's that book she did on Tonglen practice? Do you remember, Patty? Start where you are, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, sharing my own experience lately um, was um, having been fired from a job and having to go through, um, I've been through that before, so a lot of fear comes up, but being able to say, oh, fear, here you are again, I know who you are, we've been through this before. So that first practice <coughs> Uh, was very, very helpful, but there were a lot of other things around this particular job that needed healing, that needed time, that needed to be felt and, and looked at that were personal and interpersonal and, and that. But as, um, as I looked at the fear, and I did a lot of on the spot, this is not 30 minutes necessarily, but this was a lot of five or ten minutes on the spot when it would come up. And it didn't matter to me how many times a day that was. The important thing was that it came up and my goal was to attend to it now if it wasn't overwhelming. And uh, so to deal with the fear and then to bring in the self-compassion and many, many, many times I care about this pain. And Establish a sense of safety. You've dealt with this before. You'll do. You'll do this again. Even though you don't know how it's going to turn out, you really don't. And I realized teachers. You know, I really it brought a lot of teachers in terms of um, increasing patience and increasing um, trust and faith. Um, and uh, you know, I had some, but. This was a real stretch yeah. in those areas, and um, and then as I went on, I realized what teachers came. I also realized um, what contentment came, and what gratitude came, and what this time has allowed me. So. Um, it's kind of been an arc, I would say, of alchemy. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, Alexis. It's a little bit after nine, so I think we should leave it here. Thanks, everyone, for your sharings. Just take a few seconds, let go of the words. the sense that given that we've all started may we all finish this work and maybe it <clears throat> may it be for the benefit of all of our loved ones our friends and all beings without exception <clears throat>